Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Hi, it's Joanna Oki here, and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast a podcast brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Well, today we are talking all about tech startups and what their exit looks like, given just around the corner we have StartCon. So we thought it would be perhaps a good topic to bring to you our audience today in this theme of tech startups and their exit. So to talk about this, I have brought along the fabulous Oscar Jones from Copperstone Capital. Hi, Oscar. Welcome along to the Deal Room Podcast. Good morning, Joanna. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. It's great to have you. Okay, Oscar, maybe why don't you kick this off perhaps and just give us a really quick snapshot of who you are, your background, and how you work in this area. Yeah, sure. So I've basically joked that I've never had a real job in my life. I've always been a consultant, but I've had about 30 years of consulting experience working right the way through from some of the largest companies through to startups. And I guess I started doing capital raising about eight years ago. And I found that one of the key parts of capital raising is trying to convince investors that they're going to get their money back through some sort of exit. But most founders had very, very little understanding of what sort of exit was possible for them. So they would typically say, oh, we're going to exit via a trade sale or an IPO in a number of years' time. This, of course, was really not realistic. The number of companies that go on to do an IPO as an exit are very, very small. We can talk about that later. And a lot of companies never exit. They either just go along without really achieving anything or they fail. So it sort of brought my focus particularly to, I've done a few M&A deals and it brought my focus specifically to saying we could really improve the whole tech startup e- ecosystem if we had a more robust way of exiting and allowing founders to take that experience and then apply it again and then apply it again. So that's sort of what brought to that space. What a fabulous comment. I think that's such, you know, a great perspective, Oscar. I think we're going to have fun talking about this uh, this subject today. So, getting into the subject, I guess, of where we're going today. So, why are we talking about tech startups and their exit? Because, you know, StartCon, I guess, is all about startups. You know, it's about starting. <laughs> so, so where does that get us to exit? And why do you think that it's important for startups to be thinking through clearly right at that startup phase about their exit? Okay. Well, there are a couple of really interesting sort of stats that uh, are based around how much employment small and medium companies provide to the Australian economy. And I think everybody understands that innovation is a key part of driving an economy. And we've got some real challenges in Australia to being able to grow and develop companies past the startup stage. Everybody's spending money on 
early stage startups, the government's spending lots of money on incubators and accelerators. But once you get kicked out of that, you're pretty much on your own. Even the rules around R&D, tax expenditure, uh, claiming, and the rules around the employee share schemes all basically cut out at $50 million revenues. So we draw support quite early. And of course, $50 million is still a, a fairly good size for an organisation. And certainly we're not talking about them as startup, I, I guess, at that point. No, you're, you're quite right. But the issue is that the real powerhouse of employment are those fast-growing companies. And if you're growing at 40 to 60% per annum, it doesn't take very long before you smash through a $50 million revenue ceiling. And particularly with those companies that are trying to address a global market, that's one of the reasons why they want to tend to move offshore. So rather than make companies have to go offshore to deal with this. One of the other options of dealing with this is to actually sell the company to a larger company that has the resources, that has the capital to be able to drive the company to the next step. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess by what you're saying here is effectively it's the whole starting with the end in mind, which, you know, is one of those common sort of sayings that we hear, but it's often harder to do and something that we see less often that it appears by the ease of the statement, right? But I guess, why is it that, do you think the business owners, you know, creating these startups, really fast-moving startups, aren't thinking so clearly about the end? And and I guess, firstly, it's because education is driven that way, but Well, I think it's more fundamental than that. I think one of the issues is we call it an exit. Now, an exit has a connotation of being the end, the the last thing you do. And that isn't the case. Let me give you a, a couple of examples. If I'm an angel investor, I would invest in 10, 15 companies, maybe more if I've got a lot of funds. And I do that because I know that I have to play a portfolio because I know that only one in five, one in 10 are actually going to, going to do anything for me. As a founder, I've got a very, very different focus. I've only got one company. I've got to make this company work. However, we can get a founder to basically diversify their career path, if you like, by getting them to exit the first few a bit earlier than they would normally do, put some money in the bank. That can be a life-changing decision for a lot of founders who otherwise are struggling on the breadline because startups don't give you much money coming back. And it gives them experience of running the whole way through the cycle, startup, growth, and exit. I think that's a big part of it, that people don't think of it like that because they're so focused on getting the technology ready, getting it up, that that the last bit is forgotten. And it's, I think, a a bit of a a natural human way we think. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I I really like the idea behind all of that. It, It really makes sense. And in fact, when I'm talking to business owners who seem to have been really successful in their exits, rarely is it their first exit. So usually when I'm talking to someone that's built 
um, you know, a really super strong business and, and developed a really successful exit. Most often, they've done it a number of times before. So that really hones in, I, I think, and proves the point that you're talking about here. It's certainly something that I see anecdotally. And the other thing, of course, and I'll give M&A advisors a bit of a pat on the back here, if you can bring an advisor in a bit earlier, then they can often help you with structuring the business so that you get a better exit. Because most owners haven't focused on the exit, there are often things that need to be done. And some of those things actually can take a couple of years. Just establishing better growth profiles, making sure that you're focused on the things that matter to a potential buyer rather than things that maybe you would need just to grow the business. So there, there, there are a number of elements that need to be focused on. I completely agree with what you're saying here because, once again, these um, experienced business owners or, that I'm talking about or, or these owners who are experienced in exits, you know, what I hear again and again and again is, you know, them saying, you know, the first time round they tried to do too much themselves. And as they move through various attempts at building and selling businesses or uh, new examples of their own building and selling businesses, they learnt the importance of early engagement of people who knew what they were doing, apart from they themselves knowing what they were doing. So it's fascinating, I think, you know, moving from someone who really understands the importance of early engagement of the right advisors. Well, I think there's, there's one other big thing as well that I think most business owners probably are not too much aware of, and that is if I'm going to develop a business I'm going to do customer research. I'm going to know what my customer wants in terms of the product that I'm going to build. I would never dream of trying to build a product without knowing what the customer might be like or who I'm targeting and and doing a fair bit of market research. Yet the number of times I hear businesses say, oh, we'll build the business and when it's right to exit, somebody will magically appear who will pay us lots and lots of money for what we've done. That is the reality, unfortunately. And what's fascinating is that companies, if they're buying a business, there are sweet spots for various companies. So if you're a company that has a $100 million market capitalization, then buying a $5 million business is a straightforward event. It probably is within the authority of the CEO to execute. But if you're going to buy a $50 million business and you're only a $100 million market cap, that is going to be an agonizing decision for the board to make because it's going to change the nature of the buying company as well. So what happens is that as a startup grows, the potential buyers change. And a small startup may be targeting a business that's a mid-sized business in Australia, but if they grow past a certain point, those businesses will no longer be able to buy them. And you're starting then to look at large businesses or you're starting to look overseas for the purchaser. And cross-border deals are more difficult to do than in-country deals. So there are some real challenges about understanding who the potential buyer is at any stage and how many of them are there. Because if you've got just one buyer, they're in the box seat. If you've got two or three buyers with deep pockets, you're in the box seat. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And look, maybe if we could have a bit of a chat about what some of those indicators are of perhaps a point that the startups should be recognising maybe a signs for, for thinking about a sale or exit. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I can talk a little bit about, for example, if you're building a software as a service company, there are actually three or four different phases that you go through. If, for example, you're pre-revenue, then really the only thing that people might be interested in is buying your team. They're not interested in buying your idea or your, your early products. Now, teams can be very, very profitable. The current rate for an artificial intelligence developing team is about $1.5 million per person. So that can be quite a good exit. But of course, you, you lose any upside. What drives software as a service company or SaaS companies is their annual recurring revenue, their ARRs. And if you've got an ARR of around about a million dollars and you've got initial traction and you're one of the darlings of the market, you can exit for 25 to you know $100 million because people are buying the upside potential. But if you then go and grow that business a bit more, you've lost that early opportunity. And the way that people value the businesses will change and you start to move down to maybe a five to, for a very good business, 10 times your annual recurring revenue, your ARRs. And of course, at $2 million, that puts you between 10 and $20 million, which is less than the amount you would have received at a million dollar revenue. So you have a dip in your valuation. Understanding that you've got those local points in your growth where it makes sense to exit. And then as you grow your revenue, of course, once you get above about 10 to $15 million revenue, then you've got a proper business. And so they're going to be valued on more standard business metrics around cash flows and growth. If you say no at one point in time, be aware that you're going to have to continue to grow the business, maybe for up to three or four years before you get back and above that same valuation. I guess everybody's got to look at that themselves and see what the opportunities for them are if they sell and what else they can do to really make that decision properly. Mm, well, I guess, you know, clearly then it's about, you know, having an eye on where your business is in comparison to where the market is and what what levers will actually have an impact on price and what impact your growth plans will have on the uh, value of the business moving forward. And obviously in conjunction with people who understand where the market is. So if we're talking then to these startups who are at that early phase, what would you say to them in terms of how they can start thinking about what their exit looks like? How, how can they get educated? How can they understand what to do and what to look out for? Well, like everything else, it's about research. It's about understanding not just where you are now, but what it might look like when you get to the next highest point. For example, I've got a client at the moment who is at that early stage of about a million dollars and they want to push on to the next stage. The problem is the industry they're in, we're going to probably run out of buyers 
in Australia for them at that next stage. So the focus we now have to do is to start researching international companies and saying how big are they, what would it look like if we get to that $10 million revenue, what would it look like as an acquisition for them? Is it too small for them? You know, that's the next problem, that sometimes companies see things as being too small. The cost of due diligence is not insignificant for a lot of companies, and so they want to get something for it, preferably make it an impact on their earnings or potential earnings down the track to make it worthwhile. So again, it's about it's not a linear relationship. It's about matching the potential buyers to the stage that the company's at and recognising if you miss that, then the next stage might not come around for a while and it's going to be a very different set of buyers and they're going to be buying on different criteria. I guess the next question is, Oscar, quite often businesses will get to this point where they've gotten the business to where they can at the moment or they have the energy to. So, you know, next they're either looking at exit or they need more capital in the business. In fact, I had a meeting with a new client yesterday who is going through this process right now, you know, in relation to their SaaS company. So, you know, what's your recommendation as to when you're best looking at external capital versus looking at maybe pitching this in terms of an exit? Yeah, I, I think that that comes down to the the founders in particular understanding both the risks and the rewards. The fact is that only maybe one percent of companies that are funded are ever going to get to a stage where they're, you know, the next Atlassian or the next unicorn. Most companies are not going to reach that. And there are risks along the way. And as long as owners understand those risks, and the sorts of risks I'm talking about are if you bring in venture capital, they are going to want to drive your business hard to try and get it into that 1% because that's where they get their big returns from that justify most of their returns in their portfolio. There's been a few reports in the paper lately about the self-driving car startup Zooks and the Australian who started it, Tim Kentley Kay, has just been sacked as the CEO. Now, he's a founder whose vision and drive got the company up to being considerably large. They've just had a $500 million Series B capital raise. So this is not a small company. But the founder is now in a position where he's got a minority shareholding. He's no longer running the company. Yes, he's on the board, but that's a limited um, influence on the company. And the main reason given was he didn't have the skills to be able to manage and drive what has now become quite a large business. This is not unusual, that founders often have conflicts with the capital providers, and they sometimes get pushed out. And we've got to understand that the founder and the capital providers do have different objectives, because a capital provider is is investing in a portfolio, and they need to make the portfolio work. They're not so concerned about the individual companies working. As I said before, a founder has only got this company. So if he gets locked in with a VC fund that wants to run it for another seven years and is going to go for broke, 
then he's basically locked into that. So as long as you understand the risks and the rewards, that's really where I'm coming from. I wouldn't necessarily suggest exit every time, but be aware that you know most of the exits are trade sales, not IPOs. Most of them, and a considerable proportion of them, are by founders who have not raised capital, which gives us another interesting dynamic. And and certainly, you know, to your points there, I think, you know, one of the real risks for founders are dealing with a new direction of the business, as most usually happens if they're getting a lot of capital on board, is that the founders are used to making their own calls. <laughs> this is, I think this is often the problem, right? They're just, they're used to being the creator and the driver. And now suddenly there's all of these other people that they have to, and, and rules that they have to fall in, in line with. That can create real issues from, uh, you know, an emotional or motivational level, I guess, as well. And I think the reason why everybody talks about Atlassian as an example of how to do it is the founders of Atlassian did not need any capital. They didn't have to go to the capital markets and raise capital to keep the company afloat. When they did finally decide to raise capital, it was purely to scale globally. So they were in the box seat when it came to dictating the terms. And Look, I'll take my hat off. Those guys have managed to do a tremendous job of transferring from a startup to a massive company and have obviously done it extraordinarily well. So it's it's not that it's not that it can't be done, it's just that it's not the normal. Yeah. Well, yes, I think absolutely you're right. That's a, there's a lot of people out there, though, who use that as a, uh, <laughs> you know, like their big motivational force. But certainly I, I would absolutely agree. It's, <laughs> it's certainly not the norm. Are there any sort of parting words, Oscar, that you would like to add uh, to, to this discussion? I think be aware that you get your money back in a startup on the exit generally. And that having a good, solid plan from day one and keeping it up to date and keeping your advisors close to you so that you are maximizing the value will see, will see an enormous improvement in both the number of startups that succeed and also the price that um, founders can can achieve on those. I think that's really the, the bottom line. Some really wise words there from you, Oscar. And I think, you know, we should note for any tech startups that are listening along to this episode, if, if you're at StartCon, I think you're going to be there, aren't you, Oscar? Yes, I am. Yes, I've got a small small stand there. So head along and make sure you uh, look out for Oscar Jones at Copperstone Capital if you want to have a chat about your tech startup and your exit plan for for the future or lack thereof, perhaps, maybe. (laughs) Well, hopefully after listening to this, we might see a few more exit plans being produced. (laughs) Absolutely. Earlier on in the piece. That's right. (laughs) And Oscar, look, if people want to, our listeners want to um, connect with you or maybe even take advantage of this session that I know that you offer a complimentary session to a explore exits, how can they go about finding you? 
Yeah, sure. I, I'm I'm always happy to talk to tech startups. And on my website, there's a uh, there's a facility that you can request a, a consultation. We take about an hour and we go through a various number of things. Most people find it quite helpful just in terms of understanding and um, being able to sort of position themselves on the export. That's on the website. Yeah, and so that website is copperstone.com.au, www.copperstone.com.au, and we'll have links to all of these in our show notes. And, of course, if you're at StartCon, make sure you pop into Oscar's stall and say hi to him. Thanks, Oscar. Thanks so much for coming along to our show today. And, look, Oscar, I'd love to have you back again. Uh, Maybe the next time we can be talking about what the mechanics of a startup exit looks like. So stay tuned for that episode uh, where we talk further to Oscar about these concepts of developing an exit plan and understanding exit for startups. Thank you, Jane. A delightful pleasure as always. Well, that's it for our episode today, all about tech startups and what their exit looks like. Just as a recap, in this episode, we talked about tech startups needing to look at their exit earlier. We touched on the issues of everyone talking about the startup phase, but not the exit phase, and why exits are just as important as the startup in terms of understanding when you're going to be able to drive the most value out of a business. Well, if you'd like more information about this topic, then head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com where you'll be able to see an outline of this podcast episode if you want to read it in more detail. There you'll also be able to find details of how you can contact Oscar Jones, and we'll also have a link through to his website at Copperstone Capital. And on that website, you'll also be able to find details of how to contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal if you or your clients would like to discuss any legal aspects of sales or acquisitions. We have a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or an acquisition and to get into the transaction itself. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. So don't hesitate to book an appointment if you want to find out how we can assist. And finally, look, if you enjoyed what you heard today, firstly, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And secondly, maybe consider leaving us a review. We're always so grateful to get reviews from our listening audience, and it also helps us in uh, getting this message along to more people listening in to this podcast. Well, look, thanks again for listening in today. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and the Deal Room Podcast. See you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen. that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au.